Hi, this is Dr. Ra this is Dr. Randy Bach. It's March 28, uh, 2023, and here with Michael Young. Can you tell us a little bit about what you've been up to and, and who you are? Hello, doctor. Thank you for having me on. It's really a great honor. I'm Michael Young, uh, not Young, Yon, Y-O-N, Yankee Oscar November. I grew up in Winter Haven, Florida, right in the middle of Florida, in a very lucky little town called Winter Haven. And uh, I always thought I was going to be a physicist when I grew up, but I ended up being, uh, went off to the Army, actually, became a Green Beret at 19 and went off and did all sorts of other things. And um, so I've, at this point, I've spent more than half of my life overseas in about 90 different countries. I'm talking to you right now from northern Japan. I just got here uh, about a week ago from Netherlands, actually. I was over in Netherlands covering the elections um uh with the uh provincial elections in, in the netherlands which uh, there's a reason i spend so much time in places like panama and netherlands and here in japan and uh and it's all to do with ccp chinese communist party and the world economic forum in this real actual war that we're in it's mostly a soft war at this point that has very serious consequences you can see world economy is collapsing we're clearly setting conditions now for famine. Uh, again, I'm in northern Japan right now. This, it's interesting how this place is kind of overrun with bears. I mean, actual bears. Like, there's two different types of bears in Japan. And with a lot of the older farmers dying off now, they're abandoning these old, well, they're abandoning, they're dying. So a lot of these little towns and whatnot and villages in Japan are now abandoned. And so bears are just everywhere, you know, up in this northern part. It's really wild. So they're putting up these robotic uh, wolves to, you know, to scare off the bears. And there's bear attacks, and fatalities, and, and these are straight up dangerous bears. These aren't like black bears in Appalachians. You know what I mean? These are straight up killer Asian black bears and also brown bears. And uh, and you know, there's nothing to be trifled with. Interestingly, you know, there haven't been wolves in Japan. I think in maybe 150 years. And likewise, it was similar in Netherlands. Uh, in Netherlands, where I, again I was just in Netherlands, there's real cause for me to go there. It's not random. I've been I was spent several months in Netherlands last year, and it's because the 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 Dutch, well, let's say the World Economic Forum, the Chinese Communist Party, are trying to create something called World uh, Tri-State City. Tri-State City, Tri-State means three countries: Netherlands, Belgium, and Germany. So those are the three states are trying to build this giant smart city called Tri-State City. And if you look up Tri-State City, I'll keep repeating it so you remember what I'm saying, Tri-State City. If you look it up, you'll see the maps online. It will comprise about 30 million people, and it includes um, uh, Rotterdam and Antwerp ports, right? Those are the two biggest harbors in Europe, right? So they're massive. So those are, if you control that, area you're controlling a huge amount of the european economy now interestingly and not coincidentally the railway that goes all the way from shanghai and chengdu and all these other places in china they kind of feed together uh, and they go right across asia and dump out right there at rotterdam so it's not a coincidence that tri-state city is at the railhead of this belt and road initiative that's going right across asia that's why i spend so much time there but back to wolves Interestingly, I just left uh, the wolf thing in Netherlands, and um, when I, just when I got there, a wolf was killed about 500 meters from my hotel, got hit by a car. Now, 
a few years ago in Netherlands, they passed a law that, you know, they proposed a law to protect wolves in Netherlands. And the Dutch are like, wolves? There's no wolves here, right? You know, the, why would you, pa okay, pass the law. They didn't really argue about it. Well, anyway, the law's passed. The wolves are very strongly protected in the Netherlands. And now suddenly they have a lot of wolves, mysteriously. And in fact, Ursula van der Leyen, what's her name? You know, the, the, the uh, EU, they call her the witch of the EU, actually. One of her ponies got killed by a wolf about um, four or five months ago. Mm. And they got DNA off of her pony. They're hunting that wolf now. I don't know if they've gotten it yet. But about, maybe about three weeks ago, too, when I was over in Netherlands, uh, next door in Germany, uh, a young woman was riding her bicycle. And she said three wolves got after her. And luckily, she had it was an electric bike. She had a turbo button, she said. And the wolves almost got her. Anyway, these wolves... Why are they suddenly released in Netherlands? Well, it's quite clear, actually. It's not even hidden. If you look on the World Economic Forum website, they've got this huge, you know, um, um, basically nature preserve with a bunch of wolves and bears. And all this was, you know, these maps and these art artistic renderings were done before the wolves even suddenly were on the scene in, in Germany and uh in Netherlands, right? Now, what they're doing now, the World Economic Forum, the left wing, or the people that are globalists, let's say, uh, they're trying to blame this on the farmers. They're saying, well, the reason that the wolves are killing all these sheep and, you know, killing the ponies and, the, and you know, chasing the German girl down the road, that sort of thing, uh, are because the farmers are encroaching on their land. Well, that's interesting to say when you're talking about Netherlands, which was, you know, underwater, you know? But, you know, so... So, you know, the Dutch, of course, have reclaimed uh, a, a large part of Netherlands from the sea. You know, of course, that that doesn't, you know, get in the way of people of saying, but this is ancient, you know, uh, 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 wolf uh, country, which it, it was maybe wolf fish. I'm not sure. But anyway, it's really interesting. <laughs> so I've been, tra I've been tracking the food and energy issues. I left Netherlands. I came straight to Japan and I went to a place called Ishigaki Island. Ishigaki Island, if you look it up, is way out there in the middle of nowhere. Uh, it's maybe a couple hundred uh, kilometers from Taiwan, actually, near the Senkaku Islands. The Senkaku Islands are contested between um, China and Taiwan and Japan, right? So there's a reason I went to Senkaku. Senkaku is like that forward edge of the battle area if we end up in a war over uh, Taiwan, right? And, for instance, uh, a few days ago down in Ishigaki, the mayor said to us, you know, they're quite concerned because, you know, Japan itself doesn't have food security. They import 80 to 90 percent of their food for the whole of Japan. In places like Ishigaki, you know, they, you know, if you look at their caloric uh, uh, production, they, you know, they might be 120 percent or something like that. But most of that is sugarcane, right? So th their actual self-sufficiency is only like 10 or 15 percent. In other words, they just don't have enough food period. If you discount sugarcane, obviously mm -hmm. people aren't going to live on sugarcane. And so what they're quite concerned about is that, uh, you know, in a war with Taiwan, first of all, they won't, or, you know, or China, they won't have any food. Well, all of Japan could be very seriously short on food. And, uh, and what will happen? The people in Ishigaki will have to pull out because there's no food reserves there. I was talking with the mayor about that and other people. Uh, and so they'll probably be replaced, as the mayor said, with huge amounts of Taiwanese that will come over on fishing boats, right? Including tons of mainlanders who will come over as spies or whatever and basically take Ishigaki Island, right? 
so Ishigaki is in uh, is in uh, Okinawa Prefecture. So basically, you would be let's say the state of Okinawa, right? And uh, of course, there's other islands in that prefecture. But but the bottom line is, any war causes this human osmotic pressure, you know, that push and pull of migration. But so I've been over here, uh, you know, last night spent or y yesterday and late into the night with a bunch of uh, 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 Japanese government officials, you know, military, their intelligence people, elected officials and whatnot, talking a lot about food and energy and migration issues, right, which they're quite concerned about. Uh, because, you know, everybody can, or most of the people that are paying attention at least can see that we've got some problems building in the world. Uh, a lot of people can see that conditions are building for severe famines, right? Now, how will those famines play out? Unknown to me. That's actually why I'm in northern Japan, because I'm studying the food issues, right? Uh, I was just down in Ishigaki, which is about as south as you can get in Japan. You know, it's near Taiwan. And now I'm up near the north. <clears throat> and, you know, the reason why I'm going all over is to do things like talk with farmers. But a problem with the farmers in Japan is most of them are about 70 or more years old, right? Yeah. So they're dying off literally every day. They just they there's just zero food security for Japan. So Japan is very easily cut off with food and energy. This is Good. a big, gonna, big deal. I'm gonna, speaking of cut off, I'm going to cut you off for just for a second. So this is fascinating groundwork. Um, so I, I'm just going to kind of probe a little bit deeper on a couple of things you say. Whether you say one, you know, we're getting we're, we're there. There are trends towards potential famine. Number two, you're talking mentioning uh, the PRC versus Taiwan. Uh, I'd like to kind of touch on that. Uh, it, it, and, and, you know, not to confuse things, but in regard to, weirdly enough, our involvement in Ukraine, um, whether we are, from a military sense, you know, overcommitting ourselves and whether we're, in fact, undercommitting, you know, our, our World War II uh, opponents, Germany and Japan, now our allies, and whether they have the wherewithal to self-defend. Um, you were mentioning, you know, you've kind of got, you know, talked about the tri-city state, which um, it involves Germany and now Japan uh, in regard to, say, potential war in Taiwan. Now, the Taiwan, I listened to my, I want to give a shout out to my son, um, and Sam Bach, and his friend Michael Williamson and Andrew Denary, who have a, a show called the Pravdcast, like Pravda cast like pun on podcast as well as the synopsis s-i-n-o-p-s-i-s so they've been doing geopolitics now for a number of years on this great 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 podcast uh series of both of them and so i've been listening assiduously to the podcast and they talk about well you know michael's kind of more of a, a, a gearhead um you know artillery um deep dive and he understands that you know there's not that much overlap between the armaments that we're sending to ukraine and then potentially what we might be sending to taiwan in a in a hot war but sam is much more cautious about this and saying well you know we we've depleted a lot of our armaments you know locally in the u.s and we we were kind of like seven years he used up seven years worth of i forget which one um uh, javelins or something like that i'm not sure whether we can recoup them immediately uh, our, a lot of our manufacturers not like it was in world war ii where we had everything you know domestically and whatnot so um the, the kind of hone in on the question uh, his point is about taiwan that it's a very different thing it's not necessarily going to be a hot war all of a sudden it could just be an encirclement and by the time that china decides to encircle taiwan speaking of food and all that kind of stuff it could be a war of attrition or just kind of a uh, kind of a Berlin airlift scenario. Um, so here, here's uh, to, get, to kind of get to the question, I guess. So you're in Japan. Do the Japanese, have you got, got any sensibility the Japanese 
are are kind of more interested in self-protection, or they're just going to go with the flow where they're relying on big, you know, daddy um, U.S. to do this, and is big daddy a little bit overextended by paying for this gal, for that gal, and so forth. He can't really, you know, deal with all his, uh, say, you know, baby mamas, if you will, all the people that are somewhat dependent on him. Um, so can, see, see if you can unbundle any of that. That's your puzzle box. Well, you can see the U.S. economy is collapsing. You can see the United States internally is at risk of going to civil war. I mean, so this idea that we're going to keep running off and doing these massive wars, our strategic uh, oil supply is dr greatly reduced at this point. I mean, we're just not in the condition to do uh, any large hot war. Of course, China doesn't have to just invade Taiwan. I think China doesn't actually want to do that. And they're very clear about that, that they would, but they don't want to do it. They want to just take it. They just want to swallow it slowly like they did to Hong Kong. And I was in Hong Kong when they did that. I was there for that last seven months before they kicked me out. In fact, if you web search my name, Michael Yan, in Hong Kong, you'll see the Hong Kong police escorting me to an airplane and kicking me out. So I was there watching them swallow that, you know, basically see Chinese Communist Party. One of the one of the mechanisms that they used to take Hong Kong was uh, by just uh, weaponized migration. So just every day, day in and day out, they brought about 100 to 150 mainlanders in, Mandarin speaking main, uh, mainland Chinese into Hong Kong. And they did this for year after year. They took over the school boards. They took over the schools. The curriculum, of course, they're pushing the speaking of Mandarin instead of Cantonese. You know, in Hong Kong, the predominant language is Cantonese. They're different people. You know, they don't even look the same. Now, for a lot of people who don't spend much time in Asia, they might all look the same, but they don't look the same to me, and they don't look the same to each other. They're different people. They don't even speak the same language. Cantonese and Mandarin are just different languages, right? And uh, and so uh, – and. and so when the mainlanders are coming over to take over uh, Hong Kong, one of the things that they're doing is enforcing uh, that people speak Mandarin only, right? It's very upsetting to, if you look at anybody that you don't want to be dominated by as an American, for Hong Kongers, that would be mainland Chinese, Han, Mandarin speaking uh, Chinese, right? Interestingly, when I recently went down to the Darien Gap in Panama, I go there quite often, I'm going back in about a week, um, because the Darien Gap is a place where there's huge migration coming through, including a lot of a lot of mainland Chinese. I took two Chinese with me. I took one who spoke Cantonese and one who spoke Mandarin, right? And I took them down there just to interview Chinese who were coming through the Darien Gap. And uh, none of the Chinese that are coming through Darien Gap, none of them spoke Cantonese. They all spoke of the about 50 that we encountered uh, during the couple days that we were doing those interviews uh they all spoke mandarin and they're from all over the place in china by the they weren't malaysian they weren't you know indonesian they weren't thai chai's from you know chinese from uh from thailand they weren't chinese from taiwan they were mainland chinese they were from places like shanghai Chengdu, xi'an uh and oh so many places beijing all over the place and they were professionals mostly these weren't like poor people these were like you know, some of them seemed military to me. Uh, it, they were there were some family units, but they were mostly military age males. They most of them told me that they paid about twenty thousand dollars to get there, and they pay another ten thousand from Panama up to usually Texas is where they cross. 
that's about $30,000. So they'll leave mainland China. They'll fly to Ecuador. And from Ecuador, they'll take a bus up to uh, Panama. And they'll go to a place called Nicocli, which I've done before. Not not taking the bus from Ecuador, but I'll, I've been to Nicocli in Colombia. And they get on boats and they go to another place in Colombia called uh, Copargana. And from there, the Chinese will pay to take another boat. And they end up in the, the Panamanian jungle. And long story short, they end up all over the United States. So where are all these, who is sponsoring all these Chinese to come to the United States? It's not just Chinese. In February, we had at least 150,000 people that we know of illegally cross the border into the United States. One month, February, about 150,000, right? That's a defense, that's a defensible number. The number is actually seems to be uh, significantly higher, but I can, I'm safe to say 150,000 just in February, right? We're being invaded. It's the same with Europe, right? I've been all over Europe. I lived in Europe. I've been in the last two years. I've probably spent six months or more in Europe, all over the place, watching the migration, watching the flows, watching the weaponized migration. For instance, I was down in Morocco and Africa with uh, Chuck Holton, and we saw that Belarus was pumping migrants, trying to pump them into Poland. Poland resisted, and and Lithuania, right? So we flew up to Lithuania. I had been in Afghanistan with the Lithuanian army, so I have good contacts there. And I, I called up and said, hey, what's going on? Why, why is Belarus pumping migrants into Lithuania, and why are you letting them in? And so anyway, flew straight up to Vilnius and went straight into meetings. I spent a month there, actually. They gave me full access to the camps. And that was when I started warning that Russia is up to something, uh, possibly with Ukraine. And uh, anyway, so I was publishing about that at the time. And now we see there's been the war and that sort of thing. But the weaponized migration, weaponized migration has been a tool since forever, right? Mm -hmm. uh, it's been done both internally and externally, for instance, in the Soviet Union. Uh, Stalin did it to Ukraine in, you know, in the 20s and 30s, for instance, with the Holodomor famine in 1932-33. It was a it was a, a replacement strategy to replace the kulak farmers, right? So the farmers were replaced with migrants, internal migrants. Basically, the the information war uh, revolved around demonizing the kulak, labeling the first of all, demonizing the term kulak, right? Kulak is a bad thing, you know, making it, you know, just like labeling Jews, just like labeling Polish. And, and, you know, like what the Poles had to wear the P, the Jews had to wear the Star of David. Uh, and, and, and with the Kulaks, it was very similar. So first you make the term very unpalatable. And then you hang that around people's neck and say, well, that guy's a Kulak. And the reason that your food prices are high, the reason you're having so many problems is because the Kulaks are getting rich right. off of you. Otherwise, yeah, you would be in a much better... Go just ahead, for sir. our audience, you know, the, the definition, I mean, the difference... Minor difference is that, that the Kulaks were a, a kind of a class, the Poles and the, the Jews and so forth, gypsies, whatever, they were ethnicities in a sense. And so they were tied by language and blood, um, whereas the Kulaks were a class of people who were basically doing the farming. And so, um, you know, it's kind of like getting rid of computer programmers or, or whatever group you decide to demonize. So it was a, it was a class demonization. I'm um, just my minor, minor point. And so once they, once they labeled them, yeah. uh, they became the, the problem. And it's, these are the guys who are like bringing your food. There are some echoes uh, from the world economic forum and, and probably in the Netherlands as well, where nowadays we are in a sense, demonizing our food producing class in the Netherlands. You know, 100%. 
all these rules to, you know, that they have to stop using fertilizer and stop doing this, give back to the wolves. You know, I, I think that giving back to the wolves is an incredible metaphor for what we're doing uh, worldwide, whether the wolves are these, you know, kind of our um, uh, ignoring being overrun, which, by the way, is the name of a great book out. I was listening to a, a, an interview on the Andrew Clavin show, and the book is Andrew uh, is overrun about how our uh, southern border is just being overrun. You know, we, we have literally an order of magnitude uh, more people coming in. And, and just as a, as a uh, kind of side note, you know, people are saying, oh, well, you know, Trump didn't build a wall. He didn't finish the wall. He didn't care about it either. He broke his promise. But he actually brought migration down, you know, by, by uh, fivefold. And since then, it's gone up by more than tenfold, at least. And and as you point out, a lot of people just think it's, you know, kind of poor uh, Hondurans or Nicaraguans, whatever kind of traits and cross, but it's a huge uh, funnel or gateway for people from Africa and um, China and wherever. I mean, basically everybody has the message, you know, people wind up here and they send selfies back to whatever village, wherever on earth, it's easy to do. And people are coming, you know, pretty much uh, we, we have, we have border controls at our airports, but why? Because we have a huge border that we don't control at all. So, you know, if you're, if you're, you know, uh, Matahari or or some you know you know kind of like spy versus spy. Why bother showing up New York uh, you know or Los Angeles airports? You know what you just kind of traipse across um, you know which whichever pass. And the Darien Pass is an interesting thing because it's jungle. And I just want to point out to the audience, you know, your kind of incredible bravery, your peripatetic uh, bravery in showing up in all these places. And this is your long history that you've had. Um, I first became familiar with your work, and I, I believe. Um, uh, I think it was Afghanistan, but later more so in Iraq. Anyway, I'm going to uh, you, you're the, probably the bravest reporter out there. You literally embed with the troops have been embedded with the troops. I want to misstate that. Um, anyway, so I, I apologize for, for losing your stream a little bit. But, you know, it, it seems to me that we are all, you know, metaphorically and actually, whether it's real or not, giving ourselves over to wolves. And why is this, you know, part of the World Economic Forum agenda if, if in fact, they care about the economic part of our world? Um, you know, it seems to me that as if in everything, we, we spent a lot of time in the before times up to 2019 building everything up. And ever since then, we've been building everything down. Probably the seeds for that, uh, no pun intended, are, are, are longer. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I, I'm going to let you get back to, to where you were, but um, it might be tri tricky <laughs> given my long uh, di di uh, digression. Um, but I, I'm just going to maybe, if you want to just kind of go back to some of the, the roots in, in Afghanistan and, and Iraq for some of the, the weakness we've portrayed, or you can pursue, ha um, you know, I guess the withdrawal from Afghanistan, how that was precipitated. Uh, what are the, the kind of the, 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 the smells of war that you see out on the horizon? Yeah, Afghanistan. I spent two years in Afghanistan. I spent two years in Iraq, so four years between those wars. And by the way, there's a difference between war correspondence and combat correspondence and, and military uh, journalists or correspondents, right? They're, they might seem subtle, but like military correspondence might be somebody that lives in Tampa and covers like McDill Air Force Base, right? never really goes to war or something, but covers like, hey, we got a new CENTCOM commander, that sort of thing, right? Uh, you know, we got a new jet and, you know, something like along those lines. Uh, war correspondents, most of the war correspondents that I know do very little, if any, combat at all. The vast majority do no combat. They'll go to like, you know, in the Vietnam War, they would be in Saigon, right? Or in the Iraq War, uh, they would be in the Green Zone. 
um, uh, in in Baghdad, right? Or in Afghanistan, they would mostly be in Kabul, right? And then there's a very small number that are combat correspondents who do uh, combat. And when it came to combat, nobody did it like I did it in Iraq or That's Afghanistan. Literally according true. To the, I, 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 yeah, according to the New York Times, anyway. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah. And I, maybe you could just give a, a few, no pun intended, uh, crystals uh, from your um, uh, time there. Uh, I guess that's kind of obliquely referring to uh, General or Stanley McChrystal. Um, but uh, what are the what are the, the the things that you noticed going on in either of those wars? How were they? Um, I guess the word prosecuted. Um, what what changed? What were the political directives? How well were they run? Uh, what was successful? What wasn't? And what was your kind of overall feeling about you know the way the wars percolated? I left Afghanistan in 2011, and I never went back. Uh, and the reason why I left was because I was like, this, it wasn't worth risking my life anymore. It's clear that we weren't going to win. In fact, I started publishing in 2006, way ahead of the curve, that the we're, we're losing the war in Afghanistan. It was very unpopular in 2006. It wasn't until about 2009 that mainstream media started to catch up. And, uh, and, and you know, for many reasons, you got to keep in mind, I spend most of my life downrange. I spend most of my life in places like Nepal or India or third world countries or running around China, that sort of thing. So so when I look at Afghanistan, I look at it through the eyes of somebody who's constantly in countries like that. Right. And I and I can see that. Like, for, Let's go back to Nepal. Nepal started to really open up. I spent a year in Nepal. I was out with the Maoists during their war, that sort of thing. And during during uh, during the uh, you know since about the 1950s when Nepal started to open up, uh, they're still one of the poorest countries in the world, right? And mm -hmm. they have a similar problem set that Afghanistan has. I've been all over Afghanistan, spent a year in Nepal, and I spent two years in Afghanistan. The problem set is quite similar, insofar as they've got huge amounts of mountains and terrains with no roads, almost no infrastructure, lack of bridges, huge amounts of cultures, many different cultures. Now, people who haven't been around Afghanistan much might go, well, you know, there's just Pashtun and Tajiks and Hazars or something. Uh, it's a lot more nuanced than that. It's like fish on the coral reef. There's a lot of different sorts of people. Uh, there, a, a lot of the uh, things that I used to take for granted when I grew up in Winter Haven, Florida, yeah. city of a hundred lakes, is all these all these little bridges we have, right? You take those little bridges for granted when you grow up in a place like the United States, and the infrastructure was already built by the time I was born. I thought everybody has bridges everywhere. Right? We only needed little bridges, but in Winter Haven, Florida. But if you were if you're in a place like Nepal or Afghanistan. The lack of these little bridges is a big, big deal, right? And the, uh, another problem that they have in almost every country I go to is most people cannot self-organize. I mean, for instance, if you and I, if you were one village leader and I was another and there was a, a, a river between us and we needed a, a bridge to do trade and, and to do this, that, and the other, we would like schedule a picnic one day and say, I'd be like, hey, Randy, let's get together and let's have a picnic and hey, you know what? It'd be good if we had a bridge, wouldn't it? You know, and you got a bunch of trees and I got a bunch of men. And uh, and I know this other guy in the other village that knows how to build bridges. You know, we would somehow get a, build, a bridge built and we wouldn't wait for somebody to do it. But if you go to a place like Nepal, you go to a place like uh, Afghanistan, 
these little tiny bridges that would be easy for people like us to build, even if they were rickety bridges, we would have a bridge built and they just won't do it. They won't self-organize, right? And so they'll they'll be like that forever. So basically all these little valleys and mountains all over Afghanistan or Nepal, they're just like different little planets. You know what I mean? I mean, they're just like, they'll, they'll never come together. And for instance, in Afghanistan, most of the, about 80% of the people live in about eight cities, right? It's very similar in Nepal, but fewer cities like Kathmandu, Pokhara, and a couple more, right? So most of the people live in just a, a few little places, and then everybody else is out in, in the boondocks. And I mean, proper boondocks, right? And so when I was out there running around Afghanistan, I'm like, yeah, I was I was having lunch with Joe McCaffrey one time in Washington. I flew back. I said, Barry, it was just me and him. I said, you know what? I saw you on, I don't know, MSNBC or whatever he was a consultant for. And, it, you know, you're very bravely saying this is going to take like 15 years or something. I'm like, it ain't going to take 15 years, sir. We're talking like a century. I mean, because, you know, I know it's unpopular to say 15 years because Americans want to hear, ah, we'll be done in five years and we'll be out of there. It's like, well, sir, read Bob. Look, Nepal opened up in about 1950 and... 60, 70 years later, they're still one of the poorest countries on earth, right? And so it's just not going to happen that fast, period, right? And so it, 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 you just think about the problem set. First of all, nobody, almost nobody in, in Afghanistan speaks access languages like English or French or Russian or mm -hmm. Chinese or Japanese. They, they speak they speak Pashtun or Tajik, right? They speak Farsi. Some of them speak Farsi, which is an access language, actually. When I say access language, I no, mean I a language with which you can, yeah, you know what I mean, but a lot of people might not. Access languages is like one of the super highways to education. It needs to be something like Russian or French or German or English, right? right so let, Japanese, let me ask you Chinese, uh, Arabic. I, I apologize for interrupting, but you're bringing up an interesting point. You, you brought up the, I think, the Belt and Road Initiative, China. Um, is the Belt and Road going to go through, say, Afghanistan or and or Nepal? And I was just a side note: you're talking about kind of um, this kind of um, forced, uh, I guess, what would you call it, kind of aggressive migration techniques. Um, I think that Tibet has weaponized. been, yeah, weaponized, weaponized migration. I think China did that. Han Chinese uh, did that to Nepal, and um, um, and I think they're also doing it to the Uyghur. Yeah. Uh, region, what is that, Xinjiang, or forget the name of it. Um, I think Xinjiang, they're doing to yeah. those places as well. Uh, anyway, so I, I think that's part of a sweep, you know, it's kind of a colonial sweep. And and one man's colonialism, uh, you know, bad colonialism is another man's uh, economic stimulation. I mean, you know, the, the British uh, colonialized, uh, colonized a good fraction of the world at a given point. But, you know, as a re residuum, you know, the British speaking places are more on the economic highway uh, historically and have done better than than places that weren't uh, colonized by them or colonized by other countries. So a lot of times it's, it's a matter by whom you're going to be colonized. And are the Chinese, you know, to give them their credit, uh, there's, they've spent an enormous amount of money on this, and it's probably self-serving, no doubt. But you know, part, you know, this kind of recreation of part of the old Silk Road are some of these, you know, kind of hard to get places, uh, the various stands and whatnot, Tajik, you know, Tajik, uh, um, Kazakh, uh, uh, Turkmen and all that kind of stands. So are they, they going to be benefiting uh, from this and along with the kind of seem like new uh, accord between uh, uh, Russia and, and China? So 
um, a lot of these places, I mean, that can be accelerated. I mean, if, if they've been out of the way places, they're not necessarily all out of the way when they're not out of the way anymore, when they're in the way. Yeah, I mean, I've been up to Tibet and, you know, clearly that's a, a genocide. Um, you'll see Tibetans living in, well, a lot of them are in northern India, right? Uh, like in Dharamsala and that sort of area. I've been up there actually to the residence of uh, Dalai Lama and um, in um where is he living at? I've been up there. It's been years ago, though. But also, and there's many that are in Nepal. I've seen a lot of Tibetans in Hong Kong, actually, and many places like the United States. Anyway, they're also doing similar to the Uyghurs, of course, more hard genocide, Mongolians, uh, and a soft, very soft genocide with the Hong Kongers. Genocide is how is how Han Chinese roll, right? I mean, that's just... They'll do a genocide in a New York minute. You know, that's just how they, they do it. They clear the fields. And so, I mean, they've done it to themselves. Look at Mao's Great Famine. There's a great book called Mao's Great Famine. So it's, it's interesting when you Maybe. say do it to themselves. I mean, that is a, you know, a sui, uh, sui genocide or genosuicide is an interesting proposition. The one child policy, which I guess is only now softening a little bit. Um, and it might already have been too kind of inured, kind of built into the system that people are not propagating so you know they have they have their own you know the one child system led to you know, having just boy children uh, boy babies uh, because they were going to you know kind of uniquely uh, provide and whatnot and the girls would go off to somebody else's family so kind of this you know self-preservatory aspect had them uh, as long as they're going to only have one child make it a boy child so there's a, a huge um, um, kind of like the snake eating a mouse there's this huge um, gulp of, of weird demographics, I think I'm, you can maybe speak to this a little better than I can, of, of like male predominance of guys who are not going to necessarily be able to marry and whatnot. It's going to be a secondary um, drain on the Chinese. And, and at some point, won't they need their own in-migration? Won't they need their own Mexico or whatever uh, to provide the, the, the youth that they are presumably uh, absent uh, of um, given their previous one-child policy. So I, I, do, do they have their own internal uh, fractures and so forth? Again, my son's podcast, The Synopsis, which I get a lot of my information of this sort from, uh, points this out, that they are you know, reaching some danger stage where they don't have enough people to do the things they need to do. They do. And I mean, they snag women for wives, you know, they, you know, and, and basically kidnap, not basically, I mean, and buy them or kidnap them. Right. But it, actually, you know, the self genocide wasn't just massive abortion and, and, and uh, selected abortion. It was also the famine, you know, it's estimated 50 million Chinese killed by Chinese five, zero million, if that number is accurate with Mao's Great Famine, which was another replacement, internal replacement strategy, right? In fact, Mao, he was an acolyte. He, he, he loved Stalin. I don't know if he loved him. I mean, a little friction there, but, but let's say he followed his leads, right? And Mao did that when Stalin did famines across the Soviet Union, you know, wiping out kulaks and that sort of thing. Mao picked him up on it and supersized it to Chinese proportion, as if Stalin didn't already do a pretty good job himself. I mean, these guys, these guys like like Mao, he made Hitler look like a like an amateur. I mean, that that guy was full on, and they worship him. You know, I've been to Beijing at the Forbidden City, and you wait for hours to go see Mao under glass, right? They worship that guy like he's a like he's a god or something. I don't know if that thing that I saw was a actually Mao or just some sort of stuffed thing or something, but you know, but it's amazing how much they they worship him. 
And, you know, speaking of which, you'll see Chinese, the Hong Kongers call the Han Chinese, they call them Chai Nazis. And the reason they call them Chai Nazis, remember, Nazism is, is fascism with a huge racial component, right? Mm-hmm. I, I'm not saying fascism as in, you know, it has to be Italian. I mean, fascism is, of course, when the government and business so conjoin and co-sanguinate that they are indistinguishable. The industry, like, you know, all the the, the, the the huge business people in the government is not no longer distinguishable. That's fascism, right? Mm-hmm. Now, just add a huge racial component to that, and you got Nazism, right? And so, and, and, and that's why the Hong Kongers, and they, they got signs all over Hong Kong, China, well, they used to, and of course, not since 2020, but uh, they, they had signs all over Hong Kong, China Nazis. And when I first got there, well, I'd been there years before, but when I got there in June of 2019, because I could see that they were going into a real resistance. So I, I flew back and spent seven months with them until I got kicked out. But, but they had Chai Nazi signs all over Hong Kong. And I asked them, why do you call them Chai Nazis? And they're like, aren't you paying attention? You've never seen anybody more racist in your whole world. They want to wipe out us because we're, you know, Cantonese speaking uh, Hong Kongers. They don't even look, I, I know for the rest of the world, they probably look the same, but even to me, who spends most of my life uh, overseas and much of that time in Asia and 25 different countries just in Asia, uh, they look very different to me, right? Mm-hmm. First of all, the Hong Kongers are shorter. Uh, their their bones are different. They just look different. And and they look different to the, 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 the Han Chinese tend to be much bigger. Uh, and, and they really look down on the Cantonese speaking Hong Kongers. And they do want to wipe them out and they're working on it, right? For instance, they're, they're doing mostly a soft genocide by getting the Hong Kong children to go to school in places like Beijing, right? You see the same in Panama. There's a Confucius Institute right downtown in Panama City at the university, right? I've been down there. And, and I was one of the first in the United States to start ringing the bell about the Confucius Institutes around the United States and Canada. In 2014, if you look up my name in Confucius Institutes, you'll see me starting to warn about Confucius Institutes at places like Harvard, right? What they'll do, how the Confucius Institutes work is they'll come in and they'll offer offer the university, you know, a bunch of money. Hey, we'll start a Mandarin speak, you know, Mandarin language program for you. And we'll provide the textbooks and everything. And, and we'll, you know, give you $200,000 a year or whatever for your university. So, you know, you need to have a Mandarin program to draw the top students and that sort of thing. What they're doing is they're coming in to select and recruit students. So they'll end up getting, you know, scholarship offers to go the students to go study in China. And that's where they recruit the students of the uh, elite families and that sort of thing. There's actually a really interesting uh, counter uh, intelligence a uh, short film by the FBI and the counter- counterintelligence department. You can see it's called um, Game of Pawns, I think, right? Game of Pawns. And y- you should look it up. I've published it many times, but I haven't done it in the last couple of years. But all American students who are taking, uh, I was talking with one of my family members, actually. And and, and I was asking her uh, what she's a niece of mine. I said, you know, what are you studying? She said, Chinese. I said, oh, Chinese. Uh, Really, have you been offered a, a scholarship to China? And she goes, oh, how did you know? And I said, oh, 
Oh, that's interesting. <laughs> that's, so and anyway, my niece is not going to China for, you know what I mean? I, I, I was like that they're trying to recruit you to be a spy. That's what they do. And if you look at this uh, FBI uh, counterintelligence short film, it's about an American student who was brought over. to. It's a true story who was brought over to China. He's you know, gifted in languages. He wanted to study language. So what they'll do is they'll get you to write papers. The Chinese will and like, hey, write papers about what you think of China. And they'll start to form your ideas. And the next thing you know, they were trying to recruit this kid to get a job at the U.S. State Department. He failed the test. He's you know, working for the... Uh, for that that's a harder test actually so his handler said why don't you try to why don't you try to get a job at the cia right which is a much easier test and so he's like okay and so he took the test at the cia he passed the test right and so now he's going for his polygraph down in virginia and he got arrested right and he had already been paid they had been paying him a bunch of money the kid used it that gave it to his father to pay off his house he went to prison. So when the kid was in prison, he helped make this film for the FBI counter. Again, it's called, I think, Game of Pawns. Uh, it, it's really worth watching, actually, especially if you have young people in your family who have been offered uh, uh, scholarships to go study in China. Don't let them do it. Mm. I mean, that's a huge, well, that's, a, that's a draw. You know, I, I think um, one of my, uh, uh, from my alma mater, Yale, uh, there's some guy, I can't remember his name, He's the son of the president. That sounds like hunter gatherer. <laughs> Just kidding. Uh, actually, to be honest with you, I, I, I've had some I, I've had some posts taken down on Facebook because they bring up Hunter Biden, even you know years after the fact. Um, yeah. And so the question is whether you know on some level whether you know the best uh, investments. My I, I had a friend who for long periods of time uh, said local government is your best corruption dollar value. So he always recommended if you own property someplace. Uh, to go to all the local times uh, that a political candidate would have, be generous and all that kind of stuff, and then you get the permitting you want, and this and that, and you can you know you can kind of circumvent a lot of the rules. And he, so his his feeling was local you know local government is a place to play play your money, but I kind of feel as if um, you know federal government is, has been a huger value. Uh, the the and in a sense when you look back the paltry amounts, even though they're millions that were given to Hunter Biden. Um, have paid off uh, incredibly because, uh, of course, they didn't, you know, stay merely with Hunter Biden, um, and and whether you know China um, already has uh, an offense in, in in a sense hacked our system, um, and whether you know it's 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 distinguishable whether we could figure out uh, the the edicts and and mandates that um, our current president has done by a letting the border open for you know for the entire world, including uh, you know kind of a Chinese. Uh, potential professional slash espionage onslaught, and and for whomever else uh, has has decided to to make this um, uh, you know pathway, um, and and the money from Ukraine, you know, so th these two things kind of uh, I, I think they are mirror but uh, very similar aspects. We're spending a lot of our money, uh, and potentially at some point our 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 personnel uh, in Ukraine. Um, and we're, I, I think, overextended. I mean, you can see that we have a huge inflation. We're printing money to, to kind of fuel this. Uh, that's borrowing from ourselves and borrowing from our own assets and so forth. And whether, you know, at this point, you know, we've, we've villainized uh, Russia, um, which, you know, let's be frank, was not our friend, but it, is, is it, was it more or less dangerous than China? Uh, who, who's playing the longer game? We've thrown Russia into the lap of China. 
and we've made a new consolidation there. Um, are we going to be bitten by this? And uh, are we, you know, basically dropping Taiwan as the next part by by ha having saved, you know, quote unquote, saved Ukraine, by, you know, and in, in part turning into a scarred battlefield? Um, uh, are we going to lose Taiwan because we are overextended, and or we accede to Chinese demands, or China has gotten too powerful in the meanwhile? Yeah, there's a, there's a lot to unpack there. The Ukraine war is the biggest mistake since I don't know since maybe the last hundred years. <laughs> this is a massive error, and a lot of people can't quite see this. Or is it a massive error if you're trying to drive the world into global famine? Not that not the entire world will starve to death. It won't. But if you're trying to drive these human osmotic pressures, the push and the pull of migration to 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 collapse EU countries like France and Netherlands and and so many others, or the United States. I spend a lot of time down on our borders, uh, whether it's in Colombia, Panama, Mexico, Texas, Arizona, uh, you know, or in Europe. You know, uh, on the border with Greece and Turkey and Lithuania and Belarus. I'm I'm out there all the time watching these flows, right? And I'm watching what's happening with the with the with the food issues, for instance, at the BASF chemical plant at Ludwigshafen, Germany, a huge producer of nitrogenous fertilizers. About two weeks ago, uh, announced that they're letting off another 2,600 people who happen to work at their one of their two ammonia plants. This is a big deal for people, for the farmers out there who are paying attention. You know what I mean. The nitrogenous fertilizer prices have gone through the roof. I mean, they're just, uh, this is a big deal. For instance, Brazil gets most of their nitrogenous fertilizers from Europe. And Europe doesn't have enough to export now. We get a huge amount of our protein from Brazil. I was talking with a Dutch pig farmer a few weeks ago over in the Netherlands. And we were talking about, he, he, he has about 1,030 pigs, I think it was, something like, about 1,000, let's say. And he has Christmas trees and pear trees, right? Which interesting mix, pigs, pear trees, and Christmas trees. And, and he said, you know, it, it, it was a very smart. Farmers tend to be smart people, you know. And he, because uh, especially these ones who have done it for intergenerationally, they wouldn't be able to keep the farm. Stupid people don't keep the farm. You know what I mean? Right. You have to have certain behavior patterns that have these farms passed down century after century in the same family as it is in Netherlands and the fishermen as well. And, and he was very proud that he had, you know, he said, well, I, you know, I don't, I asked him how much his nitrogenous fertilizers were costing. And he said, Oh, I don't have to, I don't have any because I take the pig manure and that's how I fertilize my trees. And I said, well, you know, that's not really, where do you get your pig feed? And he said, Brazil. And he's a smart guy. It dawned on him without me saying another word, right? He's like, yeah, long pregnant pause, Brazil. Brazil gets their nitrogenous fertilizers from mostly Europe. And, and I said, what's happening to your feed, feed, feed prices for your pigs? He's like, yeah, you're right. It's going, I didn't even need to fill in the blanks for him. He's a smart guy. You know, he's not, he's, he doesn't have the circle, circle of Lion King. It's the circle of life. It's the circle of life that also leaves, you know, Germany and goes off to Brazil and, and, and with the nitrogenous fertilizers, makes the maize and the other pig feeds that he needs and then comes on a ship right back to him. Right. You know, so, so it's, well, it's, 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 I was yeah. over in Ireland talking with, I'll, I'll close on this, but I was over in Ireland talking with Mary Lou McDonald. She's the leader of Sinn Fein, right? Which is a, you know, a, a Che worshiping organization, to put it mildly. 
And uh, and all she wanted to talk, I was with her in a bar. I don't I don't drink, but you know it's Ireland, so she's doing her Mary Lou thing in the bar. Everybody knows Mary Lou. Oh, Mary Lou, Mary Lou. You walk down the street with her, but you know she's a superstar, right? And everybody thinks she'll end up being the prime minister of Ireland when they think that Northern Ireland is going to, you know, uh, bond again with the Republic of Ireland, which I'm like, mm, I don't know, maybe it will. <laughs> Who knows? Whatever. There's still a huge wall in Belfast. Have you been to that? This is a massive wall. It's bigger than the Trump wall on the border with with Mexico. Let's put like a lot bigger. You you would have to be a professional baseball player to lug a baseball over that wall. It's like it's like that's how big it is between the Catholics and the Protestants. And and they still think that they're going to be able to anyway. So I'm talking with Mary Lou, right? And we're in this bar. And uh in you know it's Ireland, so everybody's getting drunk and I don't drink, so I'm like, yeah, here we go. So I said, Mary Lou, what about the um um uh, um the food issues? She's like, Oh, you know, we produce enough food for 25 million people. That's what all the Irish say. We produce enough food. Yeah, it's like a talking point. And we have fewer than eight million people on the island. I'm like, okay. True. However, that's not the real balance sheet on this. You import your energy and your fertilizers, and those are in increasingly short supply, and the prices are going through the roof. She's like, "Oh, you know what? My 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 policies are all about equity and inclusion and all this." I'm like, "This place is going to have another famine, right?" I mean, seriously, it's run by idiots. I mean, Mary Lou McDonald has an IQ like Hunter Biden level, right? And yet she's super popular over there, and and and. And, and that's the what I see around the world. Most of the leaders I'm out with in various countries now, with with a with a member of parliament here in a uh, member of the diet, they call it the diet here in Japan that I was with this morning. He got it. He understood it. I was with him in his office this morning. Then I jumped on the bullet train and came up here. But he totally gets it. He realizes that Japan imports eighty to ninety percent of its food. They've got serious problems on you know energy, and they're easily cut off and you know, most of their nuclear plants are still not open. And bottom line is Japan is highly vulnerable in a war right. with China. Right. Uh, well, I, I mean, think it's not necessarily going to be a war. I think it's going to be a, 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 like watching, getting back to pear trees. I think it's going to be just a ripe fruit that drops into their hands. Uh, ditto Taiwan, once they encircle and so forth. I'm not sure we have the ability to puncture uh, an encirclement and, and nor necessarily the will, the political will to do that, to overextend on both fronts. Um, and whatnot, and getting just back to Ukraine. Ukraine is basically the Nebraska. Randy, I, 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 our Navy can't sail around without running into each other. Right. I mean, you know, they crash their ships and right. stuff. So like there's the coral and hit so, the other so ship. Many, and, so many points to, to bring up. I, I, I have a, a, um, a contact who is telling me that the military is not necessarily looking for um, kind of the warrior types anymore because so many things have been offloaded to drones and kind of like computerized functions where a lot of our intel is is computer chatter and so forth um and, and where they're not necessarily looking for intrepid warriors and a lot of the the backbone the kind of the emotional backbone of the military is gone and then on top of it all this dei uh kind of stuff which may translate ultimately to die um you know we 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 don't necessarily have we're, we're kind of ghosting uh or uh kind of emptying out um, so, uh, kind of like uh, there's a tree nearby that, that that looked great. It just fell the other day, and you look in it; it's all been hollowed out. The termites or whatever have been through it, and it looked like a tree for a long time and stood there for a long time. But it just boom, it just fell. I kind of feel like some of our institutions are going through that as well. 
And a lot of these things are echoing, you know, the Dutch farmers not being able to, you know, be Dutch farmers, uh, not being able to farm because of, um, you know, uh, kind of environmental stuff, Greta Thunberg stuff. And so they can't use nitrates. They can't do this. You know, Ukraine has been taken off the table. It's basically the Great Plains of that part of the world and feeding a large part of Africa. I mean, I think you're bringing up interesting topics, which I don't think people consider all, all the time. You, you call it as food insecurity, but I think it's just basically insecurity at security. And, um, you know, for all the people who said, oh, it's Trump not food insecurity per se. Let me clarify. I'm not saying it's food insecurity. This is clearly manufactured. This is clearly like Nord Stream 1 and Nord Stream 2. Right. When those were, I was in BAFF last year. I was there twice. And at one point, I was there with Masako Ganaha, the Japanese journalist who tracked down Klaus Schwab and went viral, you know, a couple, few months ago. Right? Yeah, I remember. I that. was there at BASF with her. And I asked, I asked uh, inside the plant, I asked, and Masako was running audio or video or something. And I, I, I asked the guy, what will happen to BASF? Because we were specifically there on nitrogen issues, on on uh, ammonia production for nitrogenous fertilizers. So I asked him, uh, what will happen if Nord Stream is cut? This is before it was cut. Right. Because I could sense something was coming, right? And and he's like, well, then that's it. He said something like, it, uh, Masako's got it on video or audio. It was something like, he said something like, like you know, well, then BASF is, is, is dead or something like that, right? Mm -hmm. It's not dead yet, but it's clearly like decrease. It's, it's clearly shrinking and it's, right. it's sending operations to China and the United. This is a big, big deal. When these nitrogenous Dude. fertilizer productions are greatly I mean, impacted. We don't realize all the things that we use that are chemically derived. Um, you know, we, we, we'd li like, like to run everything on fairy dust, but it doesn't seem to make uh, constructive things. So we're rounding out the hour. I want to close by uh, giving you a couple minutes to, to um, you know, capsulize things. I'm going to let people see where they can get in touch with you and maybe help support you and so forth. Um, so I'm going to put up, uh, you know, just a background, maybe a couple pages of yours. Um, and uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about what your plans are now and how people can support you and find you? Uh, since 2005, I've been reader supported by donations, actually, since 2005. So I'm on Twitter every day, Michael underscore Jan, and I'm on Locals uh, almost every day. Uh, the last day or so, I didn't actually publish on Locals because of so many meetings and, 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 and that sort of thing. Uh, but normally, I'm on Locals every single day. Uh, and um, but the the reason I'm reader supported is because nobody owns me because mm -hmm. uh, you know if you uh, nobody can cut me off right mm -hmm. and um, oh, Wikipedia oh I don't know if it's accurate there because sometimes they attack me on Wikipedia and, mm -hmm. and I don't have time to check it all the time but, but <laughs> Wiki, what you know I study information war by the way I've written six books three are on information war those three on information war unfortunately are only in Japanese they're not even in English. And it's interesting because one of the main things I, I talk about in one of the books is Wikipedia. Uh, there's the Chinazi thing on my uh, Hong Kong, or uh, that I I made that photo in Hong Kong. Um, that that's in Hong Kong. We, you know, oh, so many uh, uh, the 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 police used to just beat those young people down right in front of me. Unbelievable. But the um, uh, hmm, yeah. And, you know, those are good people. I would take 100,000 Hong Kongers tomorrow. Uh, they, they, you know, they're mostly family people. They work hard. They're highly intelligent. They don't do much crime. You know what I mean? They would be in addition to the United States. But 
CCP has absorbed them, you know, mostly. There are actually a lot that did make it out, but uh, anyway. But the bottom line is, is there's a lot going on, and there's a lot of moving parts to this. Uh, food security, the World Economic Forum has been crystal clear that they want to reduce the world population of 500 million. It's very clear that they're going to reduce it some amount. I don't know how much. Uh, and, and, and World Economic Forum and Chinese Communist Party are just completely entwined. They share the same heartbeat. Now, eventually, they're clearly going to fight each other. That's obvious to me because I, I watch them both day in and day out. But but right now, they have a lot of intermediate goals that coincide. The Venn diagram is overlapping a lot right now. For instance, both the World Economic Forum and CCP would like to take control of Netherlands. So you can see that they are working in collusion to do that. Eventually, they, like or say the Panama Canal. Chinese Communist Party is making a very big go for Panama, right? Uh, now, the World Economic Forum obviously doesn't want TCP to have Panama, right? I mean, uh, they, you know, they're going to be competing on, on some things and other things they reinforce. But keep in mind, every year there's the annual meeting in Davos. There's also annual meetings in, in China. And this isn't hidden. This is right on their website. It's right in the open. But most people don't realize that the World Economic Forum and, and China are even top Chinese people that I, or I'm sorry, Japanese government people that I talk with, most of them don't realize how close that relationship actually yeah. is between Chinese Communist Party and the World Economic Forum. All right. So I'm going to call it there. Um, we've got so many other things to get to. Maybe we'll have you back on and talk about some of them. I'm in your debt. Thank you so much for coming. Um, I'm going to uh, bring up my own um, uh, personal um, uh um, my own personal uh, self-promotion here, which is, uh, let's see if I can, put, I, I, they've, they've changed the uh, outlook, here we go. Um, this is my own book here. Uh, you can help support me by buying this book. Uh, you don't have to read it. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding, you should read it. It's Overturning Zika, the, <laughs> pandemic, the pandemic that never was. Um, here's a, a picture of the cover. It's got my uh, portrait um, here. The, uh, it's a kind of a, I, I don't think I was smiling for this picture, so I apologize, uh, but but it's, it's about um, the, the pandemic, Zika pandemic in Brazil, um, Zika microcephaly causation. Um, Zika exists, Zika is a real virus, but it, it does not uh, cause uh, microcephaly. Uh, that's kind of my point. Um, anyway, uh, I'd like you to uh, go check it out if you can. Um, I'm going to uh, leave it there. Thank you so much, Michael, for, for being on my show. Um, and you can hang on for talk for a little bit. We're going to say goodbye to everybody else.